Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. That's a long passage in part because there is so much repetition, isn't there? I mean, the vision is repeated over and over. And if you carry into verse 11, chapter 11, there's even more repetition of the whole story as if everyone is trying to make sure they got the story right. Because if they miss the truth on this, they're in big trouble. This is a volatile subject and they want to make sure that they've heard God correctly before they go and mess around with something as established as the separation of the nations. Now, every once in a while, you get a watershed event that marks human history, it changes the way that the flow of the, the river of human history travels. Think about the abolition of slavery in the United States with the 13th Amendment to the Constitution in 1865. Think about what that did in this country for the course of the rest of the history of this nation. Think about the election of Nelson Mandela after years of apartheid when he became president of South Africa in 1994. Think about what that meant to that nation and to the relationship between the races in South Africa. Every now and then, <clears throat> you have a major event that changes the way that people relate to one another in an entire nation. And what we just read may not seem like much at first glance, but in my opinion, and in the opinion of many, it is the high watermark, the climax of the entire book of Acts. It is the pivotal moment in the book of Acts where the gospel now explodes and it's no longer a Jewish phenomenon, but it is now for every person from every nation in all the earth. And it threatens the long-held beliefs of so many people who thought that they had life and relationships figured out. And so I want to explore this, but, but I got to tell you, there is so much to be said from this. I gathered something like 85 pages of source material in researching this message. And I, I could talk until tomorrow on this. I'm not going to. I'm sensitive that I only have about 30 minutes left. And so I'm going to choose my battles carefully. And I want to draw out two very important principles that I see in this text that relates to evangelism. And that's important because evangelism is not an optional ministry. It is something every Christian is called to engage in, whether you're shy or outgoing, whether you're rich or poor, smart or not. It doesn't matter. Every Christian is called to extol and lift up Jesus Christ to anyone who will listen. And so I want to just summarize the story in case you missed some of it. I'm going to give it to you in, in a, the, the uh, Cliff's Notes version. Cornelius is a Roman centurion, a commander in the Roman army. He lives in the seaside city of Caesarea. And he's a guy who somehow comes to know the God of Israel. And he's, based on what he knows, he's doing the best that he can. He worships his God. He gives offerings to him. And he's trying to be as moral and upright as he can. So he helps everybody who he can. As a result, he enjoys a good reputation among all the Jews in Caesarea, which is not an easy thing for a Roman centurion to achieve. One day while he's praying, he sees an angel in a vision and he's shocked. And this angel gives him really specific instructions. I don't know what you would do if you got instructions like this, but he gives him a specific name and a specific address and says, send for this man and he will tell you things that is very important for you to know. And so immediately he dispatches three of his faithful servants to go to the city of Joppa and fetch Peter. 
Now, around the same time, Peter is on a rooftop of his friend Simon the Tanner's house praying, and he falls into a trance-like state. And in that trance, he sees a vision where this blanket comes down from heaven, and it's loaded with all kinds of animals. Some of those animals are good to eat, but some of them are foul for a Jew. They are ceremonially unclean animals. And the voice from heaven says, Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And Peter says, "Uh uh-huh, there's no way I'm falling for that one. I know that half those animals are ceremonially unclean. They're not kosher. If I eat them, I will be unrighteous before God. And the voice says, listen, do not call unclean what I, God, have called clean. I'm the one who determines what is clean and what is not. Around that time, then, the men sent from Cornelius arrive at the house, and Peter gathers them into the house, he hosts them overnight, and then he goes with them to Cornelius' house in Caesarea, where he finds a large crowd of Cornelius' inner circle, his relatives and trusted friends, and they're there waiting. I mean, every preacher loves this text because that is the audience from your dreams. These are people who have just been sitting, waiting, going, all right, we've just been ready. You, we believe God has given you something to tell us. What is it? Wouldn't we love to preach to crowds like that every week? And so there they are, and he gives them the gospel. And then they all believe, and before he's even done talking, the Holy Spirit comes down like at Pentecost, and he he settles upon all of these Gentile believers, and they're now speaking in tongues just like the Jews, and the Jews that came with Peter are freaking out over this. They're going, what just happened? We've had a category shift in our mind. Something totally unexpected has occurred. In fact, something we thought wasn't even possible has just happened. And now they're reeling and trying to make sense of this. And that is, that is the story that's recorded for us in Acts chapter 10, verses 1 through 48. Are you with me now? We've got to be on the same page with what happened so that we can be on the same page as to what it all means. And the first of the two themes I want to tease out of this is the importance of preparation in evangelism. Preparation. That's so important. Let's talk about the preparation of the one who's being saved. Cornelius, the Roman centurion. Caesarea, the town that he's living in, was not always a great town. At the time that Cornelius was there, it happened to be the capital city of the Roman province of Judea the Washington, D.C. of that particular colony. But before then, it had been a second-rate port city of total obscurity called Stratton's Tower. Now, what happened was Herod the Great, who was a Jewish king but was really aware how little power he had, thought strategically that the way to gain more power was to align himself with Rome, who was the dominant power. So he made up his mind to rebuild the city of Stratton's Tower into a world-class city that would draw the attention of Rome. So he dug a very deep, deep water harbor. He put some breakwaters to prevent the southern winds from crashing the ships into each other. He built these very impressive public buildings and museums. He built a huge circular amphitheater. He did all kinds of stuff. He built temples to Roman gods. He even built a very... um, very impressive freshwater aqueduct system. That was one of the great prides of Rome was that they had fresh water coming down from mountain streams that would flow into all the neighborhoods and and then into each home. That was a huge thing in Rome. And Herod the Great actually built such a system in Stratton's Tower. 
And then the final thing he does is he renames the city Caesarea. If you see the way it's spelled, it's named after Caesar Augustus, who if you watch some of the the, the current television shows, he was the adopted heir of Julius Caesar himself. And so here he is. He's the biggest brown noser the Jews had ever produced, okay? And he has spent tons of their tax money making this into a world-class port city, and Rome noticed. And as they were taking over Judea, they decided, we need a base of operation. This fool Herod has built us a perfect capital city. Let's use it. And it became very valuable to the Romans. Now, as a result, anything that's valuable, you guard. You build a security system. So the Roman government sent a garrison of Roman soldiers to be permanently stationed in Caesarea. Among the units dispatched from Rome to Caesarea was a unit called the Italian Cohort. They were a cohort of archers who were trained for defense. And they were sent to Caesarea to defend this coastal city. And guess who happened to be one of the commanders of the the Italian regiment or cohort? A guy named Cornelius. And so based on historical forces outside of his control, like many of us, he finds his life physically being moved to a different place that would define his life for the rest of it. Now, every one of us probably has a story like that, where we are where we are today geographically, physically, due to no force of our own design, but life, like as if we were pieces of cork on the ocean, we drifted to this place because of other forces, And that is all a part of the preparation of God for how each of us came to Christ. By statistical probability, I really should be a Buddhist living in Seoul, Korea right now. But by no design of my own, I am an evangelical Christian pastor living in the suburbs of Chicago. That's a little bit crazy. Some of you find yourself in Harvest Community Church, and that right away is a bit of a miracle, isn't it? And there are people around you right now, God is moving in their lives to bring them in the proximity of those who will deliver the gospel. I bet you in Rome, Cornelius never gave a second thought to Jews other than that they were one of the minorities who lived in one of the ghettos in the city. And all of a sudden, he's surrounded by Jews everywhere, and he finds some great comfort and attraction in the God that they worship. It doesn't say much about why this guy decides to follow him, but let me give you some other aspects to his preparation. This is a guy who had a hard scrabble life and understood how to work his way to success. He was kind of at the pinnacle of his game. This is what the Roman army looks like. A legion, which was one of the big units of the Roman army, is 6,000 men. It's divided into 10 cohorts of 600 men. So the Italian cohort is just one of those units in orange up there. Each cohort then is divided into six centuries of 100 men each. A centurion commands one of those centuries. So a centurion is a ruler of 100 soldiers, but the chief centurion then commands the entire cohort of 600. Unlike the aristocrats who had joined the army and become like generals right away, a centurion had to work his way up the ranks. And you've got to understand, in the Roman army, the, the term of enlistment was 20 years. A cohort of soldiers would make an entire professional career of 20 years serving as soldiers in the Roman army, and they'd stay together the entire time. These guys got to be really good friends by the end of it. 
Those who lived long enough to see the age of, of 20, uh, see 20 years of service got a ton of money. And if they weren't citizens before, they were granted Roman citizenship as a reward for their faithful service. So this is a guy who was on the fast track to success in the Roman government and in the Roman army. But really, he's, his heart was still yearning, so much so that he found this attraction in the God of the Jews. And he begins to worship them. And we're not sure what the forces are, but I think in part it was because maybe a soldier gets real close to death and pain on a regular basis. In those days, um, soldiers didn't often just serve an entire career without seeing combat. Wars were an everyday thing. And so every soldier in the Roman army during his tour of duty would eventually see battle. And he had seen battle not with guns where you shoot from like 100 yards away and you go, oh, the guy fell. This is where you've got to have something attached to your person. You've got to feel that flesh being ripped apart by your own hand. That kind of battle. And I think that does something to a human heart. It makes you start, you know, uh, it makes you start getting real pensive about things like life and eternity and justice and fairness and power. It makes you wonder about stuff like that. On top of that, he was part of the Roman society who was taught that their Caesar, their king, was a god. In fact, the only god that they should really acknowledge. Well, I think if you're a centurion, you get an insider's view on what the Caesar is really made of. And I think he very quickly found the folly of calling a young boy a god who is clearly neither a wise man nor a righteous man. And he looked at his own emperor and said, that cannot be my God. And so his heart is yearning for something more. And he finds himself going and worshiping the God of the Jews along with them. And he says that something about this just feels right to me. And he keeps on doing it. And it says here about the ninth hour of the day, 3 p.m., that happens to be the high hour of prayer. There were two hours in the day when a Jew would pray, a faithful Jew. And 3 o'clock, 3 o'clock p.m. was the big one. And so here he is praying at the appointed hour of prayer. And in the midst of that prayer, God sends an angel in a vision to him. Now, that, that's also important to me because there are people out there who don't know the name of Jesus, but they are in their own way crying out to God. They may not know how to end that prayer in Jesus' name, but their hearts are yearning, seeking after this God. And God has a soft spot in his heart for those who are seeking after him. I said it last week and I stand by the statement. It is an error to call every non-Christian a seeker. That is simply not true. But there are many people far from God. Who have, who have realized their thing is not working. They don't have all the answers they need. There is something and someone more. And they are seeking after him. Cornelius was a true seeker. His heart was ready. He was hungry. He wasn't satisfied with the religion he grew up with. He wasn't satisfied with the success that he had achieved. He knew that for all that he had going, there was yet more to this life, and he would not rest until he'd found it. God, this very day, is working in the lives of some people right around you, who to your eyes seem very far from God and very far from even needing God, but he is working on them in ways you could not imagine. And some people will really surprise you if you pay attention. They may seem like people smug and complacent, but their hearts are yearning for more. 
Now let's move to the other side of the equation. Let's talk about the preparation of Peter. The preparation of Peter. It says the next day, as these guys were on the way from Cornelius' house, Peter also is praying at the sixth hour. Now what's interesting about that is that the sixth hour isn't even one of the appointed hours of prayer. Peter is just praying all the time, I guess. Okay? It makes me kind of feel guilty. But Peter just is praying even when it's not the hour to pray. But I also think Peter had an ulterior motive. Because around noon, in the coastal city of Joppa, which is 30 miles south of of Caesarea, it's pretty hot. And if you're inside the house, it's not as well ventilated. But Simon the Tanner, he must have been a man of means because his house is right by the sea. I don't care what year you're living in, seaside property is always worth more money, okay? People didn't suddenly learn to appreciate the seaside view in in the year 2000, okay? And so here he is going, you know what I think I'll do is um, I'm going to go upstairs to the rooftop under the awning where the nice cool breeze comes in from the ocean and I'm going to pray up there. Now, I don't want to disparage him. He may really have wanted to pray, but there was also a great deal of comfort to be found on the flat roof of seaside homes right around noon. And so Peter was there and maybe to support my theory, he finds that he's hungry. And I love that Peter does this. I'm thinking, oh, here's super Christian praying and not appointed hour of prayer. Because I'm hungry. So he actually goes downstairs and goes, dudes, um, I was going to pray and stuff, but I'm really starved. Could you, like, make me some food? And I'm going to go back up and make me something to eat. And so they're preparing food. And while he goes up, apparently he's waiting to eat so he gets strength to pray. So he lays under the awning and he falls asleep. I'm so happy I'm not the only one who falls asleep into a trance-like state when he's praying. Am I the only one at this church? Some of you, a couple of you, right, fall asleep when you pray? Thank God. And in this trance-like state of prayer, God meets him. Now, I've made a little fun of Peter seeking the cool of the day, but really, I think Peter was a man of prayer. He was up there to talk to God, and in this state of readiness... God visits him with this marvelous vision. And what's interesting is God uses, I think, his existing hunger to give him a a vision about food, but it's not already about food. But it's not only about food. Now, what you've got to understand is even though the vision is clearly about prejudice, Peter is a guy in whose heart God has already been pounding away at his prejudice. In in Acts chapter 8, we read that Peter and John went together to the Samaritan towns and they laid hands on people and the Holy Spirit came upon them. And if you know the history between the Jews and the Samaritans, the Samaritans were half Jews who had given themselves over to the oppressing nations and had compromised in order to be safe. And so the the pure-blooded Jews hated the Samaritans for their treachery and their compromise. And so there was a lot of bigotry between Jews and Samaritans. But Peter and John had already been stretched to do ministry among them, just like Philip had been. What's more, he's staying at the house of a guy named Simon the Tanner. Now, I know that you you might be thinking uh, Simon the Tanner ran a tanning salon business where there were these UV beds that people laid on. (laughs) That's not the case, okay? Peter was not up on Simon the Tanner's roof getting a tan. This is a guy who took animal skins and turned them into fine leather so that they wouldn't stink of dead animal skin, but would be useful for making bags and tents and whatever. This was a trade despised as beneath the Jew. 
And so most Jews would not want to associate with a tanner. But Peter's like, look, this guy is showing me hospitality. I really dig Simon. He and I have the same name. We're friends. And he's so hospitable. So he's staying at this guy's house. Already, it's clear that Peter is pushing the envelope of his own prejudices as a Jew. But this vision takes it one step further. But you've got to understand that God is already working on Peter. You also have to know that Peter's own life was preparing him for this major turn because Peter had no illusions about his own righteousness. Peter's not a guy walking around thinking that he's the bee's knees in the kingdom of God. He knows he's the guy who on the darkest hour of Christ's life denied him not once, not twice, but three times. He's the one when the cock crows three times, Jesus looks over at him, makes eye contact in that chilling moment. And Peter knows just how weak, how unfaithful a human being he really is. Any Christian who does not know that about themselves is living in an illusion. Peter has no doubt that he is not a good man. So often, God is already working on us in the prejudices that keep us from sharing the gospel. Now, last time I checked, you know, we, we're not the kind of church that has very overt racism. We are a pretty diverse congregation. You know, so I don't think that, that, that my greatest concern for our congregation is that somebody's going to burn a cross on somebody's lawn or there's going to be some egg-throwing and some racial epithets cast like that. I think that, that we're probably not in great danger of that in this church. But don't be so quick to assume that you don't have prejudices in your heart that work against the plans of God. I think this vision is a direct address against the prejudice that lives, I believe, in every human heart. That barrier which says that certain people are not people I care to associate with, even in Jesus' name. You see, Peter's prejudice against the Jews was something that could be overcome because at least they were half Jews. So eventually, that's not that big a stretch. Yes, Simon the Tanner didn't have the best job in the Jewish world, but hey, he was a nice guy, so he could overcome that stretch. But this vision of the animals really, really stretched Peter. It brought him straight to the edge of his universe. And he wasn't really sure what to make of this because with this vision, God was introducing a seismic shift in the way that Peter understood his world and his fellow human being. To give you a, a, an emotional sense of this, this one is for the older people in the room. All right? I just I got to throw out a bone to my fellow older people. Do you remember what it felt like in America in 1991 before some of the people in this room were even born? In 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War officially came to an end, do you remember the weird feeling in America? Like... Who are we supposed to hate now? Who are we supposed to blame for everything that goes wrong? Who are we supposed to see as the evil boogeyman? I mean, even Hollywood was confused because until then, in all the movies, we were shooting at Russians. It was Russians invading Michigan in Red Dawn. 
So who do we invade now? Who, who do we blame everything on? Who's the bad guy? Now it's Middle Eastern jihadist terrorist, right? But we need, a, we need an enemy all the time in Hollywood. And in 1991, suddenly the Russians are not the bad guys or the enemies. So how are we supposed to feel about them? They're not quite yet our friends, but we're not allowed to hate them anymore. And it created an incredible emotional confusion. Let me zoom forward to the rest of you, because everyone who's younger than 40 is like, what on earth are you talking about? Let me give you a different picture. That's not a face you want to stare at very long, is it? We Americans have been programmed to hate that face. And for good reason, this is not a friend of our nation. What would you do, and what would you do if you were a soldier in Afghanistan and Iraq on active duty right now? And a bulletin was issued from the Pentagon saying, hey, newsflash, we have made a peace agreement with Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. They used to be allies of the United States. We gave them half their weapons. We said, you know what, our bad. We're friends with them again. They're going to help us rebuild the Middle East. So all you guys over there, put down your guns. If you see Al-Qaeda, give them a high five. We're friends again. Are you guys cool with that? Let me ask you something. No matter what the generals are saying... How long would it be before the soldiers on the ground felt okay with that? Those who lost a buddy to an insurgent's improvised explosive device. Those who have seen the videos of beheadings by these terrorists. Those who for so long had thought these are our enemies. How could you possibly recategorize those people in your mind? Now, I'm not suggesting at all. The God is saying we're supposed to love Osama bin Laden right now. Don't be so distracted by that photo. You're getting the wrong sermon here. Listen to my actual words. That illustration was to give you a sense of the emotional impact for Peter that we read this and go, what's the big deal, Peter? Gentiles, Jews, what's the big deal? Well, I could just, just as easily say, what's the big deal? American patriot, Middle Eastern terrorist. What's it? Just categories, man. Just categories. There's just people. Oh, Really? Just people. These are people they could not stand. In a million years, you wouldn't want to be in the same building as these people. To accidentally ride the same taxi after one of them rode it makes your butt dirty. That's how bad it was. This was not a little casual prejudice. Even the most nominal, irreligious, casual Jew knew better than to associate with Gentiles. And suddenly a vision from heaven comes down to Peter. Peter, you as ruling person, the leading ranking member of the apostles, you need to carry this message to everyone else. We're calling a truce. Jew and Gentile now must be capable of coming to me as brothers. That doesn't mean every Jew and every Gentile will be reconciled, but it does mean the dividing wall of hostility has been decimated by Jesus Christ. And you're going to have to start wrapping your heart and your mind around this new reality. Do you have any sense now how difficult this was for Peter to hear? How unca- This is not a casual thing he's hearing. Prejudice can be a huge barrier to evangelism. Is there a people group that you find very hard, if you're honest about it, to just naturally, joyfully love in Jesus' name? Not just an ethnicity, but maybe a personality type. 
I mean, some of us may find it really hard to love loud, brash, hey, I'm the center of the show kind of people. And you look at people like that, you go, ugh, I can't stand people like that. I just don't want to have anything to do with them. Maybe some of us, I'll be honest with you, for a long time, my deepest prejudice was against first-generation Korean Americans. I had such a deep resentment of that entire group of people. It was an unrighteous resentment, a very unhealthy prejudice. I don't defend it or excuse it one bit, but I'm being very honest with you. I, I feel like lately this pulpit has been my therapy bed. I'm making all these confessions, but I look, I'm trying to get you to see your prejudices may surprise you if you realize that it's not just about race. It might be about personality type. It might be about certain other things that just set you off. And you go, you know, that's the group of people I really just don't have time for in my heart. I just don't like them. Now, now, where did Peter's prejudice come from? Well, it's interesting. Here's what Peter says. In verse 28, he's already in Caesarea in Cornelius' house. Get this. This is the opening line of his sermon to the people gathered at Cornelius' house. What a fool. Talk about the most unpleasant and unfriendly opening line in a sermon when the crowd is that ready to hear him. He goes, listen, you guys know how illegal it is for me to even be here. You're dirty people. I'm like in a dirty house. I feel like I need a shower right now is what he's saying. And they're all like, sorry? I mean, what are they supposed to say to that? And listen to how he phrases it. You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. The second half of that sentence only barely excuses the wrong of the first half of that sentence. I love how he he objectifies it. He doesn't even say, look, you have no idea how hard it is for me to be here at your house. He doesn't make it personal. He hides behind the law. He says, you know how unlawful. In other words, the reason I'm so prejudiced against you is it's my law to do that. But here's here's the big problem with that. There is no Jewish law making it illegal for Jews to have social contact with Gentiles. I'm not sure what law he's referring to other than it is clearly established by scholars in Judaism and Christianity that the rabbis had studied the law and decided it's too dangerous to let Jews hang around with Gentiles. We might infect each other. And as a result, the rabbis had made it illegal for Jews to hang out with Gentiles. It was not the law of God, but the laws of men that had made it illegal. In other words, this was a prejudice not downloaded from God, but inherited from the prejudices of a society Peter belonged to. He was taught to disdain this group of people and to believe that he was unclean, unpatriotic, impure if he had any openness in his heart to them at all. I mean, peer pressure is powerful, especially on a national level. And it was this idea that somehow the law bound me. How much easier it is to say, I hate you because of the law. Look, I let you come in my house. You know, white people looking at an African-American in the 1940s and saying, I'd love to let you come into my restaurant, but I can't. It's the law. Do you know how offensive that is? How weak an excuse that is to hide behind the law for an evil that resides in the human heart. 
to simply say, I'm just a product of the laws of this land. That is absolutely unacceptable. The laws of the land do not trump the law of God. And the law of God has never changed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And the second is to love your fellow man as God has loved you and as you love yourself. You know where this is rooted, the rabbi's restrictions, was in the dietary restrictions of the Jewish law. It was clear that Jews had very strict eating rules. It was called kosher. Kosher is a real thing, right? It's a very strict system of food laws, dietary laws, that every Jew lived by. And even the most irreligious, casual Jew, they would know that at least you got to be kosher. Being kosher was not about being religious. It was about being ethnically Jewish. In fact, kosher had become so important, non-kosher foods, they actually perceived to taste worse. They didn't like non-kosher foods. They thought they were disgusting. And the reasoning went, if you hang out with Gentiles, you'll probably end up eating their food and thereby being defiled. No clear, no, there's clearly no argument there. There were strict laws on the books about eating Gentile food, but there was no law on the books about socializing with Gentiles. And so God uses this vision of animals being lowered on a sheet and coupled with Peter's voracious hunger at the time to make a point. He's saying, look, Peter, I know you're starving. Let me show you a little buffet I've got prepared for you. Okay? All kinds of animals. Mmm, how about a nice tiger steak? Just looking at that, I'm getting hungry. Mmm. How about some fresh snake sashimi? Mmm, just sliced and diced. Served a little soy sauce and wasabi. Isn't that, mmm. What? Not hungry? How about a nice hot bowl of dog stew? Oh, I just got to throw that one in for the Koreans. I'm sorry. That's disgusting. That's just, I should be ashamed of myself. Listen to me. This is Peter's reaction. He's going, oh, tigers, dogs, cats. We don't eat that junk. Platypus, I'm not going to touch that. And, and God's showing him all these animals that he's not supposed to eat because they're ceremonially unclean. But the reason Peter is so averse to it is not just for religious reasons. He is grossed out. He's repulsed at the thought of eating these animals. And why? Where does the repulsion come from? It's a category issue. These animals are in the category we call food. These animals are in the category we call pets and zoo creatures. They're not food. We don't eat dogs. Most of us don't eat. We're not supposed to eat dogs. But think about it. That natural revulsion at the idea... Does it come from the fact that, dude, I had dogs too. It was gross. I've never eaten that again. I don't know what dogs do taste like. I really don't. Honest. I've never had steak, snake sashimi. It might actually be good. I've never tasted a tiger, but man, what if it's really better than steak? It's not from prior experience that we draw that revulsion, but that prejudice is born out of a category issue. Here are categories we call friends and categories we call the enemy. 
This is typical military speak, and I get that because in the military, you're talking about life and death in the pull of a trigger. You can't have a lot of gray. It's got to be kill or don't kill. It's got to be that simple. But even in civilian life, we approach it that way. Either you are friend or you are foe, and God goes, let's look at it a whole different way. Either you are family or you are not. All these silly little lines we've drawn around ourselves don't matter anymore. The only defining line now between human beings is whether you are in Christ or you are not. That's the only thing that matters. All other boundaries are folly. They are sin before God. And as a follower of Christ, each one of us needs to make our peace with this very important truth. Is there a group of people in your life that as a a matter of category, you just decided in your mind, this is the gospel, this Christian thing isn't for them. Not only will they not be interested, truth is, I really don't care for them. In parentheses, what I'm really saying is they can go to hell. Frankly, I think that's what they deserve for all that they've done to us. Do you see the tribal nature of that language? What that tells me is that my chosen tribe, whether it be the United States of America, the Hoffman Estates Police Department, Harvest Community Church, the Lee Extended Family, whatever tribe I decided to call my people, it's what you've done to my people that I can't excuse. Your group now is on that category which I've called the enemy. And what Christ is saying to Peter is, you have no idea what just happened in the gospel. Your little tribe doesn't matter anymore. You've become, in baptism, part of a new tribe called the family of God in Christ. And that person who used to be your enemy, if he is in Christ, is your brother now. The only tribe you're called to defend is the one defined by Jesus our Lord. Every other dividing line is a is an abomination to God. He hates it because it's an impediment to his gospel in the world. I've often said that one of the most racially segregated and perhaps racist or racially narrow endeavors in the church in America is the immigrant church. It's like the immigrant church only cares about its own people group. That's one of the reasons I grew so frustrated with the Korean church is that the Korean church seemed only to have eyes for the Korean people. And my, my enduring question is, what about everyone else? Don't they count? And the answer I often got back was, well, they can take care of themselves. We have to worry about us. And that pronoun issue is a serious problem to the gospel because there is only one us, and that us is we who are in Christ, not we of the slanty eyes. The only us that ever mattered were, was those of us who once were lost and have been found by the grace and mercy of Jesus our Lord. So Peter opened his mouth and he finally says this pivotal confession. Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Here's what Peter is saying. As he spends a little more time at Cornelius' house fellowshipping, the idea is really dawning on him. I really get it now. You know, you're a Gentile, Cornelius, but you have a familiar smell on you. You're not so different from me. You love the same God I love. The only thing you have ever been missing is Jesus. And I'm bringing him to you today. 
You have been a devout, a devout follower of Yahweh God of Israel. Now it's time to become a follower of Jesus the Messiah. It would lead Peter later to write in his second letter, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Do you see the turn of heart in Peter's theology in his life? As he once was narrow, he wanted only certain people to know God. By the end of his career, he understands that God's heart is not as small as ours. God doesn't share our prejudices. He's not marked by the pain. And truly, that's where a lot of our prejudice comes from. It's not just from a decision to hate an arbitrary group of people. Prejudice does arise out of pain. But often it's pain endured at the hands of specific individuals and we've generalized to an entire group. Do you realize how destructive that kind of blanket thinking is to the cause of Jesus Christ? The truth is God will never hate people as much as we can hate people. And if we don't come to grips with the prejudices that are inside of each of us, we will never fully understand or know God. If you claim to be a follower of Jesus, but you feel safe and insulated in holding on to your hatred and prejudice towards an entire group of people, whoever they may be, then the work of the gospel in you is radically incomplete. There is no way, hear me, there is no way to reconcile faith in Jesus Christ and prejudice. But don't get me wrong. I'm not suggesting that everyone from every group will come to Jesus. But the point is that there will be some from every group who can. And if you have a prejudice that says an entire group of people are off your radar because they don't count. They're not for me and I'm not for them. You will miss out very often on the joy and privilege of being the one who speaks Jesus Christ into the life of another person. I'm not suggesting that every person in Al-Qaeda can or will come to Christ. Many are right now staunchly the enemies of Jesus and the enemies of the United States. And the truth is, they do not like you at all. And it's understandable why you would not like them. But there are some who are included in that great number whom God has named already. Despite their affiliation, despite all the poison they've been fed all their lives, somewhere in their conflicted hearts, they're yearning for more than strapping on a C4 vest and pushing a button and dying. It is not what they want. They're sick of the violence. They are sick of the life they've known from birth. And somehow God wants to reach them. But they will never be reached by an evangelical America that says all Al-Qaeda are the enemies of God. God doesn't see groups the way we do. He sees hearts that are either moving towards him or away from him. And if all we see are groups and we feel insulated and going, I forget them, forget them. I hate all of them. They should all just get nuked. Why don't we just drop a bomb on the whole place? There's no way 
to reconcile that view of things with the followership of Jesus Christ, is there? At the heart of the gospel is this strange belief that even from among my worst enemies may be one who someday may bow his knees to Jesus and be my brother. And if you cannot understand that, then my challenge to you is I don't think you have understood the gospel. The gospel you've accepted is a very weak, pro-American, stars and stripe gospel. It's something that's only good enough to save the good guys. It has no power for the bad guys. That's not the gospel I believe. Certainly not the gospel in Scripture. I delight as I look around this room to see such a diversity of faces and personalities, backgrounds, income levels, education levels. We are a very diverse group, and I believe that this gathering of people bound together only by one cause, it's the shared experience of Jesus. What else could bring this group of people together? I mean, look around you. Why else would you hang out with these people if it weren't for Christ? Seriously. But Jesus brings this room together, and this room delights the heart of God. It is my earnest hope and prayer for this church that God would have us deal with every remaining lingering prejudice we feel is somehow defendable. That we dash them against the rocks so that no matter who God is bringing to himself, each one of us can be the person who speaks the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ into that life. It's also my prayer that we would become diverse more and more over the years because I believe that us living together in peace and true family-like love honors the Lord Jesus Christ. In so many ways, it brings that validity to what he suffered on the cross because unity was so on his heart when he made the sacrifice for us. I'm going to invite us to bow our heads together and pray. And I don't know if for whatever reason, maybe I said something I didn't even intend to say that just agitating you, but if you're feeling an agitation right now in your heart, follow it. Pay attention to it, would you? Because God was unearthing certain deep prejudices in me. I discovered this week in prayer that one group I really despise are hyper-intellectual, arrogant atheists. People who write books to disprove God. And I find that when I hear about things like that, something in my heart just gets really dark and I want to crush them. I don't want them to be humbled and broken. I want them to be proven wrong and suffer for a long time for their offensive thoughts. And I don't think that thought honors Christ at all. I've really been repenting of this because it's pretty deep in me. I'm going to invite you right now to think about where your prejudices might lie. Because at the heart of that is an explanation of what's blocking you from certain parts of the full experience of being a Christian. 
It's what still leads you to divide the whole world in terms of categories. So confront those prejudices now. We'll just be quiet for a few moments and then we'll repent of them together. Lord God, we know that even right now, all around us, there are people in our orbit whom you've been preparing for a long time, wooing their hearts, calling them towards you. Maybe new neighbors that have moved in to our street, a new employee at our company. We have no idea about their story, but we believe in faith that part of that story may include you. Just relentlessly working away on their hearts because you love them. Because there's an emptiness that they've acknowledged in themselves and their hungry hearts are reaching for something more. We pray now that you would also be preparing us Lord, in our heads, we know the gospel message. But in our hearts, the roots need to go deeper. Forgive us, Lord, for looking at our world in categories that are meaningless to you. You do not see Republicans and Democrats and Americans and Middle Easterners. You don't see gay and straight people. What you see are human hearts that are either with you or far from you. Every heart is on a journey towards you or away from you. That is the only thing that matters. Teach us, God, as your people to look at the world the way you do. Take away from us our prejudices that keep us from being your voice and your hands and feet. Lord, this message is not for someone else. It's for each of us. Now cause each of us to contend with you in our own hearts. To not miss this moment of opportunity to begin dealing with these deep-rooted prejudices. And I just confess to you, God, that I'm not powerful enough to simply change my own heart about these things. But because we're powerless, we now ask you in Jesus' name to remove from us that impulsive, instinctive bile that rises in our throats. Help us to rethink our fellow human beings. And Lord, when you bring someone into our lives that you've been preparing, give us the joy of being the one who gets to speak Jesus to them. May you purify Harvest Community Church now and always of hatred, of injustice, of prejudice, which dishonors the cross and the name of our Lord Jesus. 
may you do it by your own power and for your sake. In Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.